0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants.
1: A pretzel vendor ID'd the kidnapper's car as a blue Saturn sedan anywhere from 97 to 02. The problem is there are 6,000 blue Saturns registered in the tri-state area alone. Ryan, where are we on the traffic cams? To we'll make a model will help narrow it down, but there's a lot of footage. There's also no central database for school absences.
2: We can't sort by grade or gender. And there's a bad cold making the rounds, so more kids are out than usual. What about state police? A whole lot of nada, and nothing popped on parolees with the same kidnapping ammo.
3: Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, February 21st, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's just right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the everything will be alright. Last week, late on Thursday night, thousands of Ontarians were suddenly woken in the middle of the night when their smartphones set off an alarm initiated by Canada's Amber Alert System concerning an act of child abduction that had occurred in the Peel region of Ontario, while the child in question was later found murdered by her father. Those who complained to authorities and on social media about being woken during the night have become the subject of a reactionary wrath that I think is undeserved. In fact, I'll go completely in the other direction on this. What I want to know is when did we consent to being waken in the middle of the night about some crisis that is utterly beyond our knowledge or control? And I already know that there are some of you listening right now who are judging my apparent lack of concern for an abducted or kidnapped child as some kind of cold and unfeeling attitude, perhaps even immoral. Well, if that's what you're thinking, you're wrong. Now, the way Ontario's Amber Alert System, and perhaps that of other jurisdictions, currently operates, I think, is irrational, ineffective, and borders on a form of homegrown domestic terrorism all its own, all to justify an ever-increasing state intrusion control of the individual. Does this all sound harsh and unfeeling? Well, our demonstration commences right after I remind you that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justwritemedia.org where you can access all of Just Write's social media links, our archive broadcasts, and of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support, and in so doing, become part of our effort to bring a very unique perspective and a -a one-of-a-kind radio show to a worldwide audience. So it's the middle of the night, and you're sound asleep. Suddenly you hear a pounding at your front door. Open up, it's the police! The pounding keeps going on until you get up, you answer the door, and the officer tells you that he's there to alert you to a child abduction currently in progress. In a city hundreds of miles away from where you live. (laughs) Would you consider that an intrusive and unwarranted interruption in your sleep? My guess is that most of you would. So why don't as many feel the same way about that same kind of intrusion when it's done by means of technology? In principle, there's no difference. Yet this means of alerting the public has become the fake news story that's smothering the real news story about the latest abduction case that has caused all the controversy. This is from the Canadian Press, February 15th. Father of girl found dead after Amber Alert issued to face charges. A father who allegedly killed his 11-year-old daughter while the two were supposed to be celebrating the girl's birthday is in police custody and will soon be facing charges in her death, officers west of Toronto said Friday. Peel Regional Police Constable Danny Martini said Rupesh Rajkumar was en route back to Brampton, Ontario, the city where his daughter Raya was found dead late Thursday. He was arrested by provincial police some 130 kilometers away near Orillia, Ontario. Raya was briefly the subject of an Amber Alert on Thursday night, hours after her mother went to police to report. Her former boyfriend was allegedly making comments indicating his intention to harm both himself and their child. The girl did not live with her father on a full-time basis, police said, but had been dropped off at a gas station in nearby Mississauga, Ontario at about 3pm so her father could take her out for a birthday. OPP staff sergeant Carol Dion said a motorist driving on Highway 11 shortly before midnight noticed his vehicle, which had been described in the Amber Alert broadcasted to cell phones across the province. Now I find that interesting right there was was this Amber Alert just sent to cell phones or could this motorist have heard it on the radio? And if it was only sent to cell phones, was it legal for the motorist to check his phone while he was behind the wheel while he's driving on Highway 11? Both Peel and Provincial Police said they continued to deal Friday with another form of fallout from the Amber Alert, people calling to complain about the late-night alerts or repeat broadcasts that were issued after Rajkumar was in custody. Dion lamented that some people valued their own convenience over the safety of a child, a sentiment echoed by Martini. We're talking about a child that was missing, Martini said. I feel for everyone, but given the circumstances, I think it did lead to the arrest of the individual. I think that's what we have to focus on. The article concludes, The Amber Alert that helped lead to his arrest is a special bulletin issued when a child under 18 is abducted and believed to be in imminent danger. In order to meet the criteria for the alert, police must also have a description of either a suspect or a suspect vehicle. Then this item from Global News of the same day. Complaints about Ontario Amber Alerts are petty and selfish, reads the headline. And the commentary goes, quote, For some people it was a wake-up call and not a welcomed one. When the Amber Alert warning was issued Thursday evening looking for a missing 11-year-old, the signal sounded around Ontario. An Amber Alert is something we should never want to hear, but nor should we ever feel bothered or inconvenienced when we do. It should go without saying that a child who has been abducted and is in imminent danger represents a law enforcement priority of the highest order. Our default position should always be to wonder if police did enough in such a situation, not whether they did too much. If we ever find ourselves concerned about a police overreaction, one would think it would involve massive searches of homes and vehicles, not whether our cell phones buzzed and woke us up in the late evening. Yet that's what happened this week in response to an amber alert that went out Thursday night in response to the abduction of an 11-year-old girl in the Toronto area. Now I have to stop here for a moment and just comment on a couple of these things. First of all, this editorial asserts that we should never feel bothered or inconvenienced when the the police wake us up in the middle of the night on our phone to tell us about something a hundred miles away. Well, here's the problem. People don't feel bothered or inconvenienced just for the heck of it. They feel that way when they've been bothered or inconvenienced for no rational reason or discernible logic. This whole system is ridiculous. It's an overkill beyond overkill. And this idea, the way people reacted to the interruption on their phones is an overreaction and that you'd think it would involve some kind of massive search of your home, that's wrong too. Either kind of interruption, if it's justifiable, you know, like if you have a just cause, is acceptable to most people. But this Amber Alert system is not. It has yet to prove its worth based on any of the reasons it was established, which we'll look at a bit later on. But the commentary continues. Tragically, people were unable to save the girl, but they were able to find the suspect vehicle as a result of tips generated by the Amber Alert. Thursday's Amber Alert was followed by numerous complaints from people who were awakened or otherwise disturbed by the notification on their phones. In fact, there were over 300 calls to 911 complaining about the notification. It's bad enough that someone would feel irritated about an Amber Alert, but then be made aware of the emergency situation police are dealing with, It's true that someone asleep in bed is not likely to have any pertinent information about the subject of the Amber Alert, but the notification is specifically intended to cast a wide net. The option always exists of turning one's device off before going to bed. Either way, it's a rather trivial inconvenience in the grand scheme of things. Well, either way, no, not either way. It's not trivial. The voluntary way, yes, it would be trivial. But the involuntary way... No, that's not trivial. But I have to ask, why does an Amber Alert have to be done in such a terrifying manner? The sound effects they pick for Amber Alerts are offensive on their own merit. And I remember the last time this happened about a year or so ago. I was just listening to my AM radio, and the sound effect that came on in the middle of a broadcast was so intrusive and blaring, and the computerized voice was illegible, couldn't make it out, that I had to I just rushed and I had to turn that radio off to stop it from making this horrible sound, and then I figured I you know could find out what was going on a bit later. so I tuned in a few minutes later, turned the radio back on, and nothing was happening. The talk show previously in progress just continued in its own subject path, nothing to do with abductions, and then all of a sudden the alert goes again, scared the crap out of me. And I turned off my radio for the remainder of the day because I simply would not tolerate that offensive sound coming across in my room again. I didn't want to hear it. And for the rest of that day, I was in shock wondering how anyone could have possibly picked that kind of alert system for anything short of a nuclear attack. At least, if the warning was about a nuclear attack, we could take some kind of effective action. But this alarming system is not about saving children. Something else is going on here. I mean, what's wrong with traditional alerts? You know, like those we used to have in the radio, quote, you know, police have just issued a lookout for a grey sedan heading south on Young. Motorists are advised to be on the lookout for any suspicious blah, blah, blah. I mean, you don't, you don't have to blare an utterly offensive sound effect at people to, quote, get their attention. You tell the average person that a missing child is involved in a quiet and calm tone, and you'll still get their attention, possibly more so than otherwise. And no one will get angry, and no one ever has when alerts were publicized this way in the past. So the amber alert itself is not an issue. It's this unnecessary and futile action of alarming people just for the sake of alarming them. Can't people tell the difference between these two things? Apparently not. That's the issue. and Anyone who's been a long-time listener to this show knows that I am ultra-sensitive to any tragic stories or crime stories involving children. One of the first things I said when we started doing this show. So whatever my own personal feelings about the plight of other children, these amber alert systems are the furthest thing removed from my mind in terms of caring about children in any sort of abduction situation. I mean, why not just use an air raid siren? If it's, a, if it's considered okay to wake people up who own smartphones, then why can't the people who own stupid phones be woken up by an air raid siren? I mean, equal time for everybody, shouldn't it be? And then upon hearing the air raid siren, everyone should go to their local radio station and tune in where the Amber Alert could be heard in detail. You know, it's like my opening example earlier in the show. What if police suddenly were banging loudly on the door of your home or apartment in the middle of the night and woke you up to demand your awareness of a particular vehicle or criminal suspect and would not leave you alone until you had acknowledged your compliance? How is that any different from the Amber Alert system? And if you think any of this is patently ridiculous, well, you'd be right. (laughs) But how are these examples any different? from how the last Amber Alert was conducted. This is what I don't get. I mean, I've never seen a more useless system than the Amber Alert system, if you believe that its purpose is what the police and authorities are telling us. And I don't, sorry, I just never have believed that. And I am unaware of any significant saving of lives that would in any way justify this kind of an alert system. Now, I know some would argue that the end justifies the means. And while that's part of their moral virtue signaling, I think the real end being sought here is an emotional end. You know, that feel-good illusion that the left smothers itself in, while the ideas it feels good about are demonstrably harmful or destructive. I don't even believe that the ends being considered have anything to do with saving children. So let's see if I have a case to make by tuning in to these upcoming broadcasts from February 15th's global news broadcast about the Amber Alert and to the same day's CJBK AM 1290 roundtable discussion with Ken Eastwood, Lorena Dixon, and Andrew Lawton.
4: Millions of people learned of Rhea's disappearance at the same time. That's, of course, how an Amber Alert works. But in this case, the alert raised more than just concern for a missing little girl. Sean O'Shea is here to explain. Sean. Alan, that's right. When the Amber Alert first sounded last night, it raised concern among many, but among others, it also raised tempers, and that became evident on social media. It's the sound of an emergency notification, in this case, an Amber Alert loud enough to wake you up if you're sleeping with the phone on. It's designed to get your attention, possibly help save a life. When Peel Police went searching for 11-year-old Ria Rajkumar, later found dead, Ontario Provincial Police triggered the system.
5: It does disrupt people's, you know, lifestyles if they're at home or if it wakes them up because it can go off on the cell phones and everything, so I understand
6: that.
4: But many didn't understand, taking to Twitter in frustration. Why am I being awakened by an Amber Alert? Not cool, Peel Police. Why didn't Peel police check the father's house before issuing the amber alert? Stop sending me alerts long after the incident. How far is Peel from Ottawa? asked another. Police were bombarded with calls to their 911 system complaining with more calls on non-emergency numbers.
1: This morning we still were
5: getting calls that the Amber, the Amber Alert was still going off at some point. Um, we did automatically, as soon as we knew what was going on, we put in the form for the cancellation of the Amber Alert. The
4: premier expressing condolences and support for the Amber Alert system.
5: It's heartbreaking, but I think it was critical that Amber Alert, and, uh, that's the reason we ended up catching this guy.
0: Your phone has the power to save a life. <laughs>
4: (laughs) alerts are distributed under what's called the National Alert Aggregation and Dissemination System, mandated by the federal government last year. If your phone is on and the volume is up, you'll hear the alert and get a message. If the phone is on silent, you'll get the message, but likely not the sound. If the phone is off, you'll get neither. In response to complaints, a backlash from others. Anyone who called 911 to complain should be publicly named and shamed, said one. What is wrong with people? Suppose it was their child. The missing child was found deceased. We challenge you to do something kind for someone. Police were hard pressed to understand why so many would be angered at being alerted.
5: We're talking about a child that was missing and in this case, the child was found deceased. So I think you have to weigh that out. Given the circumstances, I think it did lead to the arrest of the individual
4: much backlash against complainers in Peel they took 383 calls through that 911 service overnight until 8 in the morning 124 in the first hour after the alert was made some of those bona fide calls but many not and other police services including Toronto's, got hit as well to repeat if your phone is on silent you should not get the audible alert if your phone is turned on with the volume up you will hear the sound for an amber alert and any other emergency signal day or night that is after all the whole idea
5: overnight we saw a tragic case uh, an amber alert was issued late last night and then uh, early this morning it was uh, the amber alert was um, ended because the child was located the child was not located safe unfortunately the 11 year old girl died and the father is now in custody but Andrew um, Peel Regional Police, early in the morning at 3 a.m., tweeting that people were calling 911 to complain that the Amber Alert woke them up. I, I, This just shakes my faith in humanity that there are people who think that their sleep is more important than the safety of a missing child.
2: This is, as I understand, the first time the test has, or th- that we've had the Amber Alert in Ontario without it being a test. First or second, I think, that's gone out on phones. Right. Yeah, I think I maybe second. Maybe yeah. second. Because I
5: recall this yeah. happening before. Right. Mm-hmm. And
2: I think that's like anything, it's still fairly new. And I had one once when I was in the United States and I had never had it before. It was before it had moved to, to Canada and I it, it was quite jarring. That's the point of it. It's meant to be jarring. Mm-hmm. I, I do question exactly how many people we're talking about. I mean, Peel Region has millions of people. If two of them call 911, how many people are calling them with time-wasting quandaries on any given day that are just about, you know, there's a dog barking or something like Touché, that? Touche, yeah. But, but even then, if you look around social media, there's a lot of frustration with this, a lot of outrage. I think a lot of it is is really put into perspective by the outcome of this case that Mm -hmm. we're talking about a a girl who's dead and and there's a homicide investigation underway. I do think though that if the system starts to turn people against it, that will ultimately work against the system in the long run. And I wonder whether there is a a solution to this that's a bit more regionally focused. So this alert, for example, I was in bed, it woke me up, I looked at my phone uh, and and I could see what it was and it was Peel Region headed east on the 401. So that's Mm -hmm. not of interest to people in Windsor. Maybe you could argue that it could be of interest to people in London, but we've seen amber alerts in the past for Sault Ste. Marie Thunder Bay, where mm-hmm. there's more of a connection to Minnesota than there is to London, Ontario. Yeah, And I think that when people start to hate it, even if it's misplaced and even if it's wrong that will work against it so I think that's something that we'll probably have to have a conversation moving forward
7: but is
5: it happening enough that people are hating it really how many times this is the second case we can remember yes. where it was an amber alert and, and, in not, and not in months? a short time yeah not yeah. in, not in a,
2: a really short time window so uh-huh. no I think you're right if this started happening every month mm-hmm. then I think it's a different dialogue yeah but every six s- months it's just going to be this repetitive thing where everyone's going to get it everyone's going to complain about it and then we forget
5: mm-hmm. I was on the same page as you, Andrew, originally when these came out, because I'm like, why don't they keep them a little more localized? If it's in Thunder Bay, do we really need to get the alert in London, Ontario? I can't remember the specific case, though. There was one that was, uh, I believe it was last year, and it was not within our region, but it turned out the person was close to our region. Mm -hmm. I mean, even you think about somewhere like uh, Thunder Bay. Sure, that's a day's drive, but... It's a day's drive, so yeah. I mean, you can, yeah. you can, but
2: it's also a day's drive to South Dakota. It's a day, and, and I don't think the alerts are going out there. No, and, probably and that, not. And that's the issue. This program is an American program, and it's a lot easier to get from one state to the other side of the state than it is to get from Ontario to the other side of Ontario. So I again, this, this, and these are nitpicky things, like it, I would rather have it broad than not have it at all. I just think that if we are seeing this discontent with it, there are ways that you could probably try to fine tune it a bit more.
5: I think the key is there that you just mentioned. It's nitpicky, and mm-hmm. I think that's what yeah. really sticks in my craw with the people who are calling 911. It's it's nitpicky for you, yet we're talking about the life and safety of kids here. So I think on the side of the safety well, and, of the kids. And, and, and yeah.
2: the thing is, forgetting about the 911 calls, Peel Region says it was because of a response to the Amber Alert that they found the father. Uh, and in this case, that didn't have any impact on the safety of the little girl, but there are many cases where that would be different. I mean, this was a really tragic outcome. This isn't the most common outcome.
1: Tyler Donegal lives with his mother in Westchester. Court records show that the parents' divorce was finalized two months ago.
6: You reached the parents?
2: Just got off with the mother. Marielle left court. She moved out of the city last year, got remarried to an anesthesiologist last month. She says she has no idea that her son is missing. He was spending two days in the city with her ex. She's on her way in now.
6: If the father had custody, where the hell is he? And why didn't he report the boy missing?
2: we are working on it, sir. Father's a maintenance supervisor at a high-rise on West Broadway and Canal. He lives six blocks from Central Park. Yo,
0: Donegal called in sick for work yesterday and today.
6: Divorced parents, one child, one spouse remarries quickly.
1: So she dumps the janitor in the city for the doctor and the burbs. All the
6: father has left is his son. He's got all the hallmarks of a custodial abduction. You okay? Can't imagine how Tyler's
3: mother feels. Yeah, me neither. When Alexis was four, we went Christmas shopping at some mall in, in White Plains. I was trying on some charcoal fedora. I turned around, she is gone, vanished. I looked everywhere. So did mall security, so did the police. We searched for an hour. Have to be a novelist to think about the worst case scenarios.
1: Where'd you find her?
7: Behind a rack of winter
3: coats. She got bored, she crawled underneath there and went to sleep. <laughs> To this day, I still dream about that. Yeah, I'll bet you do. It's every parent's worst nightmare, not a dream. If you've ever experienced a similar circumstance, then you know exactly what Castle was talking about, that primordial fear that grips us when we come to believe that our children are in imminent danger. And I think it's that very fear that's being exploited by this Amber Alert system, which was put into place strictly for cases involving child abductions and not other circumstances. However, that's going to change soon. Watch out. They're going to be applying this Amber Alert system to all sorts of other warnings dealing with other things like forest fires, weather, and issues like that. All of this is in the works right now. Now, having heard what we just did, you know, like when Ken Eastwood said that this just shakes my faith in humanity, that there are people who think that their sleep is more important than the safety of a missing child. Well, that's just not the case. First, let's be clear here. At no time whatsoever is there some kind of choice between one's sleep and the safety of a missing child. That's not even on the table. If I could believe for a minute that a life would be saved by my being arbitrarily woken up in the middle of the night, I'd be all for it. Fortunately, for my needed sleep, reality does not present us with this kind of option or association. Because if it did, I would sign up for that kind of interruption voluntarily. What? Five sleep interruptions equals five saved lives? How can you not sign up for something like that? It's a matter of price, isn't it? Cost and price. But that's not the issue here. The very notion that this is the alternative, a child's life or a few million people's interrupted sleep, is so bizarre, it boggles the mind that anyone can even make that association, yet it appears a lot of people do. And I say appears, because that's not what I think any of them are really doing. I see it all as this big grandstanding virtue signaling event for those who think that their feelings or their sense of altruism can somehow have any effect in circumstances like this. It's a complete detachment from reality. But just listen to the ongoing narrative in the face of the obvious futility of Amber Alerts. Now the justification for waking millions is not to save a life, but to help police make an arrest of a suspect after a crime has been committed. Quote, we're talking about a child that was missing and found deceased, so I think you have to weigh that out. It did lead to the arrest of an individual, end quote. Well, I don't know. I don't think the end justifies the means, and certainly not in that case. So, now look at what's just happened here. So, saving the child is, is no longer the justification for alerting us, but arresting a suspect is a good enough justification Well, no, I think that's even worse. Talk about a lesser end justifying a greater means. So now the goalpost of what constitutes an end is being moved from saving a child's life to somehow assisting in an arrest of a suspect. I just don't think that's what it's about. took a quick look at Wikipedia, and they basically pointed out how AMBER is officially an acronym for America's Missing. Broadcast Emergency Response. So there's where you get your A-M-B-E-R. But this explanation, in fact, turns the name into a contrived acronym, whereas these emergency alerts were originally named after Amber Hagerman, a nine-year-old abducted and murdered in Arlington, Texas in 1996. Now this is interesting, retrieval rate, according to the U.S. Department of Justice, and of course we're looking at American stats right now, of the children abducted and murdered by strangers, 75% are killed within the first three hours. Amber Alerts are designed to inform the general public quickly when a child has been kidnapped and is in danger, so the public would be additional eyes and ears of law enforcement. A Scripps-Howard study of the 233 Amber Alerts issued in the United States in 2004 found that most issued alerts did not meet the Department of Justice's criteria. Fully 50% were categorized by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children as being family abductions, very often a parent involved in a custody dispute. There were 48 alerts for children who had not been abducted at all, but were lost, ran away, involved in family misunderstandings, for example, two instances where the child was with grandparents, or as the result of hoaxes. And then they go into other alerts that are issued where the police didn't know the name of the abducted child and where there are misunderstandings of witnesses who report an abduction. 70 of the 233 Amber Alerts issued in 2004, which represents 30%, were actually children taken by strangers who were unlawfully travelling with adults other than their legal guardians. And then under the heading of controversies, which I suppose is what we're into right now. This is also from Wikipedia. Some outside scholars examining the system in depth disagree with the official quote-unquote results. A research team led by criminologist Timothy Griffin, reviewed hundreds of abduction cases that occurred between 2003 and 2006, and found that Amber Alerts actually had little apparent role in the eventual return of abducted children. The Amber Alerts tended to be quote-unquote successful in relatively mundane abductions, such as when the child was taken by a non-custodial parent or other family member. There was little evidence that Amber Alerts routinely quote-unquote saved lives, although a crucial research constraint was the impossibility of knowing with certainty what would have happened had no alert been issued in a particular instance. Griffin and co-author Monica Miller articulated the limits to Amber Alert in a subsequent research article where they stated that alerts are inherently constrained because to be successful in the most menacing cases, there needs to be a rapid synchronization of several events. And they get into a whole bunch of them. You know, discovering the child's missing, uh, having the luck of someone seeing the child somewhere, etc., etc. Lots of issues. Finally, the implied causal model of alert the idea that rapid recovery can save lives, is in a sense the opposite of reality, they say. In the worst abduction scenarios, the intentions of the perpetrator usually guarantees that anything public officials do will be, quote-unquote, too slow. Because the system is publicly praised for saving lives despite these limitations, Griffin and Miller argue that Amber Alerts act as, quote, crime-control theater, in that it creates the appearance but not the fact of crime control. And boy, do I ever think that hits the whole nail on the head. So there you have it. First, you know, being all upset at being waken up in the middle of the night about something you can't possibly do anything about is not in any way indicative of a lack of concern for a child in danger. And nobody's complaining about receiving an Amber Alert. The complaints center around the police state manner in which the alerts are issued. Shouldn't that be obvious? But no, that's not how people are talking. So the bottom line on this whole amber alert system is that it's really a public relations system more than a crime-fighting system. Crime control theater, the term used by Griffin and Miller in their study, is very much how this whole alert system appears to me. And we're always dealing with this myth of what is preventative. You've heard the saying, one ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. But in reality, (laughs) an ounce of prevention is worth a million tons of pure BS and utterly misguided thinking. Because to quote-unquote prevent something from happening, you first have to have knowledge of the future. You have to have certainty that something will absolutely happen if X is not done to prevent it. So let us now turn our focus on the ideology of prevention from the field of crime prevention To the field of public health care and what some doctors are now calling a public health issue, the banning of handguns. Coming up on the return side of our bumper from the February 11th broadcast of The Evan Solomon Show.
1: Where's my son? That's what we're trying to determine, Ms. Lefcourt. When was the last time that you spoke with him? Uh, Two days ago when I dropped him off at his father's.
7: He was supposed to be with Dean. Have you talked to Dean?
1: We're trying to locate him now. He's not at work, he never misses work. Can you tell me about the divorce? How did Dean take that? Um, not well. He was very bitter and angry. Does he own a gun? A handgun? Yes, there were break-ins in his building. Do you know what kind? Why are you asking me about a a gun? Was somebody shot? Was my son shot? No, nobody was shot, Miss Leftcourt. It's just the man who took your son was carrying a gun.
6: The Canadian Doctors for Protection from Guns wants the government to pass a firearm bill and they, they support a, quote, handgun ban. Now, why do doctors get involved in this and why are they doing it? Let's find out. Dr. Najma Ahmed is a trauma surgeon at St. Mike's Hospital and the co-chair of the new organization, Canadian Doctors for Protection from Guns. Dr. Ahmed, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So, why did you tell me about this Canadian Doctors for Protection from Guns? How did this all start? We,
0: uh, thanks for the question, uh, we are a coalition uh, of healthcare providers, doctors, nurses, other healthcare professionals who have witnessed firsthand the devastation that is wrought by guns on our patients. And, you know, a lot of people may not realize that the, you know, the shots of the ambulance rushing the patient to the hospital and then the, you know, the ambulance bay doors close, what happens after that is months and months and months, sometimes years of uh, surgeries and uh, reconstructive surgeries and further treatments and uh, physical therapy and emotional rehabilitation. And often these patients are, are never fully recover. Uh, and we as uh, physicians and other healthcare providers, a social scientists who study this subject, know and understand that these are preventable injuries and preventable deaths. And so we feel compelled uh, to raise this issue as a public health crisis, and that's what we're about.
6: There have been doctors in the States that I've spoken to about this, and the reaction from a lot of people was, stay in your lane. Remember that? You're a doctor. You're not a firearms expert. How do you know that a handgun ban will work? What do you say to those critics?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. This is our lane. In fact, the medical evidence is uh, very compelling. The presence of guns and firearms is an independent risk factor for suicide, particularly in adolescents and for gun injury in children and for homicide, particularly intimate partner violence and other kinds of uh, injuries and deaths from guns. So the evidence is actually very clear. We know that countries with stricter gun uh, laws governing civilian access to guns those countries have much lower rates of gun deaths and gun injuries. And Canada, in fact, is an outlier. When we compare ourselves to the U.S., yeah, we look great. But when we compare ourselves to uh, to our other peer nations in the world, like the U.K. and France and um, Australia, Japan, the Netherlands, we're an outlier. Our gun fatality rates are actually eight times higher than those peer nations. Oh, is that that right? Yes, it is right. So people don't think that.
6: People think, oh, well, we're not the U.S., we're okay.
0: Correct, because when we compare ourselves to the U.S., we, are, we look great. Our gun fatality rates are something like five or seven times less than theirs. But, uh, you know, they have school shootings, and their children have uh, drills to, to practice for if there's an active shooter in, the school, in their school. So I wonder if that's the correct comparison, if that's the right comparison that Canadians really want to uh, compare themselves to.
6: Okay, so you, how did you guys come up with a handgun ban? Because there's a lot of gun owners who are probably listening. And I think, like,
0: I'm
6: I'm not a bad person. I'm not shooting anyone. I I like guns. I'm a sport shooter or I'm a a hunter. What about that?
0: Yeah, you know, recreational hunting is something that's uh, in our indigenous culture, and a lot of people do quite safely. Uh, But uh, handguns, I think the evidence is very clear, that civilian ownership of handguns and a proliferation of these weapons in our society, leads to increased death and injury. So uh, it's fine to say I'm a sports shooter, but these guns need to be uh, very strictly regulated. The ammunition that is dispensed for these guns is by by no means tracked or regulated. That's something that we need to work on. And I suppose that, uh, uh, you know, one might call it a right. Uh, we're talk- looking at this through a public health lens, and physicians and doctors and nurses have long had a long tradition for advocating for those things that protect our patients But like, but is fat, it, like I
6: understand that but uh, you know I'm yes. getting texts here doc and yes, and sure. many of them say it's not legal gun owners that are the problem it's the illegal guns it's criminals who have illegal guns and they're ending up a lot of them in your hospitals is that the problem or is it or is it anyone
0: That is why we are asking for a public debate on this issue and a fulsome look at health policy and public policy in this domain. It's difficult to know precisely what, but uh, many experts uh, report that upwards of 50% of, uh, of uh, criminal activity in our cities is related to guns that was that were originally purchased legally. They get stolen, they get given away, they get sold on the black market, and they end up in the hands of people who perhaps should not have them. So there's not enough tracking and regulation of these guns, which has led to a proliferation of guns in our country and a public health crisis related to violence from guns.
6: Do you believe that this could hurt people's trust in doctors, people who, d- who disagree with you on this. And then they no, say, you know I what? don't know, I don't want my doctor to start weighing in on, on all sorts of uh, political issues. Like, let's let the legislature, le- legislators do this. Uh, should doctors be weighing in on this?
0: Uh, doctors should absolutely be weighing in on this because it's a public health issue, the way that seatbelts are, the way that uh, nicotine packaging is, the way that vaccinations are. Doctors have had a, had a long tradition and a storied history of ensuring public safety. That is our obligation. And as, our, uh, as an, in our role as health advocates and public, and leaders of the health care profession, we are obligated to participate in this public discourse that will improve the lives of our citizens, of our fellow citizens. That's our job. How many doctors
6: do. are a part of this, by the way?
0: Well, we just launched today. Uh, so it's a growing number of doctors from all uh, disciplines, from rural uh, and from urban areas, from every province in the country, and uh, a, number, a growing number of uh, nurses and allied health professionals as well.
6: All right. Well, uh, Dr. Najma Ahmed, a trauma surgeon at St. Mike's, in Toronto, co-chair of the new organization launched today, Canadian Doctors for Protection from Guns. They are calling for a full ban on handguns. We'll see, by the way, what Bill Blair does. Dr. Ahmed, really good to have you on the program. Thanks.
0: My pleasure, Mr. Solomon. Have a wonderful day. Thank Thank you for having me.
6: Thank you, Doc. A lot of you are saying no. A lot of you are saying, why are doctors doing this? It's very, very controversial.
3: You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And what we just heard from Dr. Naj Ahmed is controversial not because of any health care issues, but because she is advocating a violation of individual rights. And that is a crisis. It's not just controversial. All healthcare professionals are fascists when it comes to their professions as related to public policy. I mean, fascism is state control of private choices and property. And whether it has to do with guns, smoking, diets, Driving your car, whatever. All healthcare professionals are bound to be fascist in their approach to quote unquote public policy. If it were up to doctors and healthcare professionals, guns would be banned outright, smoking would be banned outright, many of the foods we enjoy would be banned outright, driving would be banned outright, and you'd be forced to ingest any foods or vaccines that they would consider healthy. I suppose that one might call it a right, but we're looking at this through a public health lens, she says, which translated means that we don't care about your rights. Canadian Doctors for Protection from Guns. Now there's a name for you. The word protection here is utterly misleading. It's it's used to disguise the real intent, to ban guns, not to protect us from guns. How am I protected, quote-unquote, from guns by being prohibited from owning one? If a criminal attacks me, either with a gun or with another weapon, how is my inability to own a gun protecting me? I can indeed see how it protects a criminal. And that is the exact experience observed in many a jurisdiction where handguns are banned. But facts don't matter to the preventative mindset, because there are no facts that can corroborate anything that is preventative in terms of cause and effect. Banning someone from owning a weapon can also be a cause of their injury or death. And alarmingly, speaking of alarms, gun crimes have been seen to noticeably drop when gun prohibitions were removed from various high-crime jurisdictions, something we have documented many times on this show. To most linear-thinking people, this is entirely counterintuitive, but if you consider the bigger picture, it makes a lot of sense. Dr. Ahmed said... We doctors and social scientists know and understand that there are preventable injuries and preventable deaths. Well, to prevent something from happening, you have to have that knowledge of the future, that certainty that something will absolutely happen if X is not done to prevent it. And again, these are very rare instances. Not smoking, for example, will in no way... "Quote unquote, prevent someone from getting lung cancer. In fact, most lung cancers today apparently occur in non-smokers, and in fact, many lifelong smokers never get cancer. Yes, there's a definite correlation between smoking and lung cancer rates, but this in no way implies that anything preventative is at play here. If you choose not to smoke, now this is a this is a philosophical issue, right?" Can I, for example, argue that I prevented, quote-unquote, my death by choosing not to jump off a cliff to certain death on the rocks below? I mean, that that argument's ridiculous. Did I prevent my death by choosing not to step out in front of a speeding car going down my street? Well, if that kind of logic is accepted as valid, then absolutely every action we take, or do not take, that does not result in our death, can be called a preventative action. (laughs) To use the term prevention in a meaningful way, would require certain knowledge of the future, and that is never possible. The intended preventative action can also become a causal action, not a preventative one, but that again depends on what effect you're you're focusing on. You know, it's like our, our earlier argument about the whole issue of causality itself. Before we can discuss the cause of something, we already have to know what that something is, and work backwards from there and even that requires constant framing and definition. Did the ball fall to the floor because of the gravity, or because I dropped it? Both views could be correct, and both could be incorrect, depending upon your assumption and your intent. Causes are always in the eye of the beholder, and always begin with focusing on the effect, whether desired or not desired. Preventing an undesirable consequence by banning guns can also be the cause of an undesirable consequence, like depriving a person of the means of self-defense when being attacked by a criminal or robber. Repeatedly, statistics in jurisdictions where gun laws are most strict have among the highest gun crime rates. But those who believe in the doctrine of prevention are living in a fantasy. And some of them are raking in a fortune from gullible people who think that their good health is evidence of something that has been prevented. But consider the big picture here. Here we have a doctor telling us that she's concerned with a public health crisis when our hospital system itself is a public health care crisis. The money necessary to carry out all of her gun-banning fantasies comes from the same taxpayer who's forced to fund Canada's single-payer health care system, which means that every penny spent on registering and tracking guns, what a useless endeavor, is that much less going into actually helping patients in the health system. Healthcare system, that's a joke. I said it before and I'll say it again. What we really need is a sick care system, not a health care system. Dr. Ahmed's tells us that a handgun prohibition is considered, quote, a public health issue, just like seatbelts are, like nicotine warnings are, the way that vaccinations are. But out of that list, only vaccinations even comes close to anything we could call public health. If someone's carrying a contagious, deadly disease, then the public has a legitimate stake in protecting itself from what, whatever that might be. But no member of the public will catch any disease because they're not wearing seat belts, or because they smoke, or because they own a gun. These are all actions, not diseases and not issues of health. We're asking for a public debate, says Dr. Ahmed. Well, I don't know how many of you have ever participated in a government-sponsored public debate, but there ain't no such thing. <laughs> every public input session I've ever participated in was not about debating anything in the sense that the winner of the, de- the debate gets to set some kind of agenda. That agenda has already been written, if not enacted, and the public input session is merely held so that the government can claim that there's been a public debate on whatever the issue might happen to be. Now, coming up on the return side of our next break, John Stossel, from his November 11th 2018 broadcast about single payer healthcare systems like the one Canada has.
6: Excuse me. Oh.
0: Please! Are you a doctor? Yes, hold on a second. I need your help. You look okay to me. It's not for me, it's my
5: friends, two of them. It was a terrible accident.
0: Look, uh, as you can see, we have no shortage of customers here. Uh, if your friends are hurt, bring a man in and we'll eventually see them. Would
6: you help us, please? It's my brother. I'm afraid he'll die unless you send help.
0: All right, all right. All right. Come on, let's go, to this Thank you. <laughs>
8: In America today, we're told people have a right to health care.
0: Health care should be a right.
7: A right to all. It's pretty basic. It's just the right thing to do. Health care should be a right. The real question is who pays for it. And that's really
8: not a rights question. Chris Pope of the Manhattan Institute City Journal studies health care around the world. Some countries have single payer systems, meaning government pays for everything. That's what progressives want for America.
1: Never again in America does anyone go bankrupt just because they got sick. Never.
7: What single payer would do, is it would make the government responsible for everybody. Instead of the government being able to focus its resources on the gaps in coverage, on the people who can't provide for themselves, the government would actually end up spending most of the money on people who are perfectly able to purchase their own insurance. In England, France, Germany, they have single payer and they're happy. Well that's really not the case. In Germany, employers provide most of the health care and fund most of the health care just as they do in the United States. In France, too. There are private insurance companies, employers fund health care, people pay out-of-pocket the same way that they do in the United States. So who does have single payer? Canada, Norway,
8: England. They have good outcomes in Norway, England and Canada
7: in England. There is rarely a week that goes by without a crisis or another in the healthcare system being part of the news. This year there was a crisis in emergency room care. People left in the hallways for hours and hours. Admitted in terrible pain having broken her back, she spent six days and six nights on a bed in a corridor. Doctors on strike, nurses on strike. In Canada too.
6: The average length of stay in an emergency room is four hours. One in ten people have to wait more than eight hours.
7: What happens when you start thinking of a single-payer system is you start allocating healthcare resources like a politician. You start thinking, well, what's serious enough to care about and what's kind of not such a big deal? With public money, you should. But it turns out that the government will try and deny care or impose really long waiting lists in the hope that people won't seek seek treatment. Do they need knee replacement? From a politician's point of view, it's not going to kill them, and you could save a lot of money uh, by not providing it to them.
8: In Britain, people buy private insurance to cover that.
7: About 15% of the population purchases private insurance. But private insurance is what single-payer advocates want to get rid of. The private insurance companies don't
8: like this idea. We're going to put them out of business. Put them out of business.
7: Well, it it makes you wonder whether this is more about spite than it is about improving people's health.
8: The drug companies that are ripping off the American people and charging us the highest prices in the world don't like the idea. Tough luck.
7: The cost of drugs is really quite cheap compared to uh, even a night in a hospital.
8: In England, people don't get billed for such expensive drugs.
7: But often that also means... Whenever a new drug comes on the market that can save lives, the government just doesn't have the funds to pay for it. The sick person may never know about the better treatment. Services that you would have access to in the United States, you're just entirely unaware of them. But what about poor people who can't afford these services? The United States certainly does more than other countries. I hear we do less. Over a trillion dollars a year in public spending, uh, really, to provide health care to people who don't afford it.
8: American emergency rooms treat anyone who comes in, and Medicaid pays for health care for poor people. In addition...
7: We have the Medicare program, which provides care to another 50 million. So just leave it the way it is? There are certainly a couple of areas that we can really improve things on, more competition between hospitals. We have competition between hospitals. We don't really. It's very hard to set up a new hospital.
8: Many states forbid it unless a board of so-called experts determines that there's a need.
7: The people who will be on these boards will be the hospitals that are already in the state. And so the hospital industry is a bit of a cartel.
8: His main suggestion, allow more people to choose their own health care plan.
7: We currently have a system based on employers picking which healthcare plan is good for employees. If we move towards a healthcare system where individuals were more responsible for shopping around, people would choose a better system.
8: Consumers hear that and say, I can't keep up with this stuff, I'm not smart enough to make the decisions about where I should spend the money. I want experts to do this for me.
7: Everyone knows what a good hospital is in their area. If you're an individual shopping for, for healthcare, you're looking after your own interests.
8: Under our current system, government and insurance
7: companies spend seven out of eight healthcare dollars for us. The question is, do we improve on the healthcare system by empowering consumers, or do we basically just say, this is the government plan, deal with it. You know,
3: most of the cures for our sick health care system relate to politics and economics, not to medicine and to doctors per se. I mean, everyone should be allowed and encouraged to pay for health care in a multitude of ways, either by direct payment, private insurance, charitable organizations, and yes, the government as a quote-unquote last resort. If governments weren't wasting so many of our health care dollars on universal single payer schemes, there would be far more resources available to those who are truly in need. But this is an argument I've been beating to death for, you know, to deaf ears for almost 40 years now. Worse. To save taxpayer money, and to avoid financial default and bankruptcy, politicians have actually cut down on the number of doctors, when we should be flooding the market with doctors. Now I got this interesting letter from Andrew B., and I think it speaks for itself. got this one on February the 6th. Quote, Just an impromptu message here about some of my observations since I started working in the E.R. about a year ago. I can really see why it is that we can throw more money into healthcare and yet our metrics still show a lack of access and extensive wait times. It is clear that bottlenecking occurs always at the tip of the pyramid of decision-making ability, the physician. On the one hand, the physician is the most trained, most intelligent, and most knowledgeable, but since so much of the decision-making power resides with the physician, there is no way to decrease the fundamental bottleneck in the system than to increase the supply of physicians, or to disseminate the decision-making ability among delegates such as nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, respiratory therapists, physiotherapists, technicians, etc., For instance, it seems ridiculous to have a whole bunch of staff sitting around not doing anything, while the physician runs around like a chicken with its head cut off, doing every little procedure and all the diagnostic, technical, and intellectual legwork. In many places, casting, suturing, and other procedures can be done by nurses and technicians. But there seems to be intense political resistance to physicians letting go of their monopoly, at least in my institution. For instance, we have physician assistants and nurse practitioners working with us, but despite their alleged professional autonomy, they often have to review everything with the physician. This creates extra work for the physician. In my hospital, the physicians have fought against nurse practitioner autonomy. But the bottom line is that despite all the resources the government's pouring into these allied health professionals with alleged practice autonomy, the bottlenecking of service still is strong at the physician level. But notice how the liberals cut physicians the most when they were in power? Interesting, the other day a surgeon and I quickly whipped a patient up to the O.R., and as we were pushing the bed, he told me that the union can sue the hospital $10,000 for him doing that. Can you imagine the bottleneck that kind of policy creates? As you can imagine or being held up because a porter is outside having their smoke break and no one dare move the patient to expedite the surgery for fear of fines. Outrageous. If I could summarize a fundamental problem based on my years of observation, it seems like the acute demand for services is quite variable and intermittent in intensity over a period of time, but the entire labor structure, from physician to nurse to janitor, is set up in a fashion that is resistant to accommodating surges in demand. Consider walk-in clinics only being open during stringent business hours. And even when walk-in clinics are not taking ambulatory patients during off-hours, the ER receives a steady stream of walk-in referrals because the clinics lack the equipment or diagnostic expertise to handle what seem like basic medical issues. Aside from all this system-based frustration, I had a good experience. Worked in the resuscitation room the other day, and a 32-year-old woman came in without a pulse. And last I heard, she was on her way to a full recovery. Kids found her at home after school, called 911. Massive mobilization of resources from fire department who first arrived to give the first shock, medics doing CPR all the way to the hospital and seamlessly carrying on more complex resuscitation in the emergency and then ICU taking over once we got the pulse back, breathing tube in, and vasoactive drugs running. Amazing to witness and be part of it. I'm grateful. End quote. Well, that's a good one, Andrew. Sounds a lot like our own experience with what happened to Danielle last year. Increasingly, both the standing joke and the reality about Canada's healthcare system is the advice that comes in the form of, don't get sick. (laughs) So don't, okay? Because we'd really like you to be able to join us again next week when we will return to continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color Color into black and white
6: Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright so
8: quick, get me a doctor.
6: Don't worry about a doctor. thing. You
8: just stay here and rest and take yeah. it easy. There's a doctor downstairs, I'll get her. Take it easy and rest and don't get yourself excited. Just lie right there and I'll get the doctor. Now, now, Just lie still and don't move, Uh, and avoid starchy foods. (laughs)